Shall we pray? Lord God, take our time this morning. Take our ears and our eyes and the eyes of our hearts and teach us more of what it means to be in your kingdom and to live, to love and serve your world. Amen. I wonder how many of you here today remember a worship collection from the 1970s. It was a green book. And number 36 was the first song I ever learnt to play on my guitar. It had a very complicated chord structure. G, E minor, C, D7. Even the musically inept could master it on a guitar bought, and I really can't believe this, but my memory is right, my guitar was bought with green shield stamps. And that collection was called Youth Praise. And those 70s youths might now be showing a few signs of wear and tear. But as I was preparing this sermon, there was one song, and I'm pretty sure it was from that book. But the book's gone as AWOL as my memory. And it was loud and clear in my mind. He brought me into his banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. He brought us into his banqueting house, and his banner over us is love. And of course, they're really, really famous words from Song of Solomon, aren't they? In verse two, chapter 2, verse 4. But they do provide a great summary of our text today. The parable of the great banquet and God's love for his creation. God's love that could be summed up. He brings us into his banqueting house, and his banner over us is love. I think in using parables, Jesus was incredibly wise about the human psyche, and that he knew about emotional intelligence two millennia before the word was invented. He appreciated what all of us parents eventually learn. Telling somebody to do something doesn't always produce the best results, does it? There's something of the human spirit that doesn't like learning in that way. We can be very resistant to hearing something straight. We prefer to engage our imaginations, perhaps our sense of empathy, or indeed our sense of justice deep inside us. We actually remember the things that we discover for ourselves They're more important than knee-jerk obedience. And it's often poetry and drama that actually allow us to engage in this process. You know, I've been thinking about things that have probably touched me in poetry and drama and taught me about life. You know, Hilaire Belloc's Matilda, who told such dreadful lies. Peter and the Dyke. That little boy with his hand in the hole, saving the whole of Holland. And some of those Shakespearean classics teaching us about power and love and the application. It's the way we explore complex truths. And I think Jesus was actually the master storyteller. And you know, so many parables are part of our wider cultural legacy. Everybody knows what the term Good Samaritan means. Everybody knows about a lost sheep and a prodigal son. 
And these parables are so multi-layered and multifaceted that they're stories we can identify with, we can remember easily, but they really bear pondering over and thinking about again and again. And they all work at several levels, but the truths within parables are truly life-changing and, I believe, life-saving. And today's parable isn't the most easily accessible. It was told in quite an unusual setting. It wasn't in one of the outside gatherings with Jesus' followers and the people who supported him coming to hear him. It wasn't in a temple gathering. It was actually in the home of a Pharisee. You know, the Pharisees, the most prominent and the most vocal of religious groups at that time. And already there was a level of tension in the conversation if you read the preceding verses. You know, in verses 1 to 5, we've seen Jesus heal a man from dropsy on the Sabbath in a Pharisee's house. So undoubtedly, there was a little bit of difficulty already. We've also had him talking about how to behave in public. No self-promotion, no nabbing the best seat for yourself. We've heard him talking on the economics of true hospitality. Don't just invite those who'll invite you back. So, you know, already his hosts are a bit, who have we got here? And then comes the parable. And one of the listeners responds, giving Jesus the hook. Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. And you know, for Pharisees and for Jews, this was all tied up with the ultimate feast, the banquet of the kingdom of heaven. And you know, if you go to Isaiah 25, you'll hear it described. This is what they expected. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of foods. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears of all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Wow. And the people at that lunch party had every belief that they would be part of that heavenly feast that it was intended for them. And the parable shakes it up a bit, a bit like one of those Christmas snow scenes. Initially, there is some common ground. Everybody there had been a host as well. They'd all invited people to meals, perhaps not banquets, but to meals. They too have sent a servant round It's just like the equivalent of a 21st century text, after all, saying, the food's ready now, come on, guys, come and eat it. Many of them, too, could identify 
with the niggle of the host. Are any of you familiar with that feeling just before an event starts and you've invited people and it's 10 minutes after the start time and you think, is anybody going to come? And there's that little moment of fear that you've got ready and you don't really know. But the twist comes at that point. People start sending excuses to the host. Other concerns have got in the way, from real estate purchase to livestock to relationships. They all understand, all the people listening to Jesus understand that the owner of the house is angry at these excuses. That's not unreasonable. But then the parable departs from what they might expect to happen in this situation. This house owner, in this parable, tells his servants to go out, to seek those who wouldn't normally have the invitation to this big gathering, the poor, the crippled, the lame. And, they don't, and when they don't fill the room, he sends the servant out again. And I have to say, I love the two words of the authorized version in this. He sends them round the highways and hedges. Don't you think there's a resonance in that? And I think that's our mission in life, guys, to search the highways and the hedges. So that the house will be full. And I think at this point, the listeners have probably clocked that this is no ordinary house owner. Because visualize the banqueting table now, full of the marginalized rather than the in-crowd, full of the people who are not properly dressed for the banquet, not properly washed for the banquet, not properly ready for the banquet. And they grasp that there's a deeper, more challenging vein to this parable. And the last words really ring it home. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. And you know, for us reading this so many millennia later, there's a danger that we can avoid that bell by interpreting this as a parable addressed to a first century elite, a semi-corrupt elite whose religious practice needs amending. And rather than looking at it as a metaphor of the kingdom of God and a picture of how the church could look is really radical stuff, isn't it? A banquet full of, and as Mark's not here, let's acknowledge his holiday and use his term, a banquet full of the least, the last, and the lost. Can you see it? Let your imaginations wander and visualize it. I tried looking to see how many great artists had painted this parable because you know that lots of other parables have incredibly famous works of art attached to them, you know, like Rembrandt's Prodigal Son. Not quite so many on this one. And certainly none I could find an image of for today. But, you know, it's a very exciting picture, isn't it? Does it excite you? <laughs> I think it really is a challenge to all of us, isn't it? 
And I was thinking about that word invitation. And I wonder how many of us are here today because once, at some point, someone invited us to come here. I wonder how many we are. I know I am. I don't think I've ever said this before, but thank you, Maggie and Fiona. Without your invitation to come to St. Paul's in the 1980s, my life wouldn't have changed and I wouldn't be who I am today. So thank you. I wonder if anybody else has had an invitation to St. Paul's who's grateful for it. If you have, when we have coffee afterwards, will you just tell somebody and share your invitation and your journey to here? But I think there's a challenge about invitations because they require a response and a certain amount of wisdom and common sense. We know that we can't do everything. But are our ears sufficiently attuned to hear the important invitation? Can we hear the pure note above the noise? Can we discern that still, small voice speaking to our hearts? Can we hear that call of the Holy Spirit? A couple of months ago, I so nearly missed a key invitation. I was invited to Angola to share the 10th anniversary of the missionary diocese and also to celebrate the 10th anniversary of peace in Angola. I really wasn't sure. My ear definitely wasn't attuned, but by some miracle, I fell into going. And truly, I came back 12 days ago, humbled and renewed. And I'm just going to share a tiny fragment of the banqueting table that I met in Angola. And Jane's going to put up some pictures. And the first one will show you the welcome to a tiny church in a Luandan suburb. And you can see that the church is in the process of being built. And this isn't my best photo of it, but it does show the front and the side. And if you look, the front was all ready for the visitors. And the side, well, that can come next year or the year afterwards. It was truly special. And if we go inside the church, you can see that actually the inside wasn't finished either. The inside was a church with a balcony round all three sides. And what you'll find is that there were about 400 people on the balcony and there was no balcony railing. <laughs> And Angolans worship um, in a not dissimilar fashion to people at St. Paul's. And I have never prayed so much during a service in all of my life. I have to confess, because I could not imagine this special service would actually end without somebody falling off the balcony. And there were quite a lot of children up there too. But the amazing thing is how good God was. Jane, don't worry about the pictures. Oh, here we are, and these are the wonderful young girls who were actually sitting right up on the balcony. 
and they came down to perform their dancing. And they danced so vigorously that you can see the tablecloth on the floor. By the end, the tablecloth had to be ripped up. The church floor is coming next year. And if we go on, Jane. When people give the offering in Mozambique and Angola, people dance up to the front and put the money joyfully into a basket. I really think we should do that one Sunday here, don't you? And occasionally, people are challenged to come back again. So all the time, people were up on the balcony, coming down from the balcony. I was terrified. But it was a wonderful service. And then after the service, we had a banquet in the old church. This is the old church. Look at this organization already. I truly felt that we had been brought into the banqueting house. And if we look at the next slide you can see what the old church was like. It was really sticks and corrugated iron. And so often we think that a church in a context like that doesn't support itself. What if I told you that the whole new church building has been paid for and raised by the members of the congregation who live in an incredibly poor area? Can we go on to the next one, Jane? And I'm going to show you the church kitchen. And the next one. And these are the cooks. I went to thank them after the banquet and to say how much I appreciated it. Because often at home, I was in the kitchen with them rather than in the service. And they were just so thrilled. And we issued a challenge that for 20 years anniversary in Angola, maybe the men of the Bernard Maziki Guild would cook the banquet and give the Mother's Union a rest. I don't know if that will happen. And we also had a chance to go briefly outside of Luanda, where we saw giants of the natural world. Oh, yes, she was very proud of her pot. Giants of the natural world and giants of the spiritual world. And here is a, a dancing bishop's photo that I hope will one day rival the ice skating nuns. It was very special. And the final slide will just show you some of the remarkable people I met at this banquet in Angola. I've shown you these to show you how much I almost missed. I haven't finished processing it, but I almost said no to that invitation. I was fearful. My familiar rut was much more attractive to me than stepping out. It was like a step too far at an inconvenient time. And my response was much more like the Pharisees in this parable than I would have wanted it to be. So I've come back having been really taught a lesson that God calls us into his banqueting house and his banner is love. Did any of you see that docu drama documentary this week about Stoke Mandeville and the start of the Paralympics? I thought that was amazing when we saw the work of Ludwig Gutmann and his first version of the Paralympics and everybody else on the staff team mocking him 
when he sent the invitation out in 1948 for people to come and play and challenge and have a competition with javelin and archery. But he issued his invitation believing firmly it would affect the lives and change the lives of all the people he'd been looking after. And boy, did it change them. And look what we've got ahead of us coming. But imagine if the people who received the invitation hadn't accepted. We wouldn't be having a Paralympics to look forward to, would we? There's a real, real challenge on how we respond to invitations. We've discovered that many of us are here because someone stepped out and invited us. So let's be bold. There are people all around us in Ealing alone who are alone and burdened. People who feel they're not waving but drowning. People who need to know the love and compassion and above all, the welcome of Jesus. We have a banquet to invite people to. You know, the new Alpha course is only one thing. There's the 80s disco. So let's just step out. But we're invited too. You're invited to come for prayer this morning as we worship now. If you've heard something, if your heart has been touched, if you've heard that invitation of Jesus stirring inside you, and we have an invitation to come and share his heavenly banquet in the Eucharist in a while, to be fed with his body and his blood. So I would say to us, and me, let's think on this parable. It's a deep one. Let's allow it to take root in us and to hold some of the tensions that we know are there. But let's claim our invitation to the banqueting house where his banner over us is love. And if we can pray for you during worship, we'd love to invite you. Because don't forget the key of this parable. Everyone is invited. Hallelujah.